Hey, it's Charlie. Thanks for listening to the Encouragers United podcast. Well, good morning. It is time for this final message in this wonderful journey that we've been making through the book of Ephesians. This great letter, if you'll remember, that Paul writes to the churches in this region around this city, Ephesus. A, a city that was bustling, that was uh, facing challenges, much like our culture today faces challenges. And so it is a very practical walk for our church. It has been for us to study the deep and rich theological truths uh, and the encouragements that we find in this letter from Paul as he was chained and in captivity probably next to a Roman soldier. Just keep that in your mind here. One thing that I want to start with, though, is that one of the overarching themes that you've seen in this book, Ephesians, the thread, if you will, that follows through all of these messages, is that if you are in Christ, you're transformed. You're not like you used to be. You were dead, but now you're alive. You were this dead fish floating down the river of the society. But no, now you will take your stand in that current and perhaps even push back that current by walking against it. But one thing I need to remind you of this morning is that if you are in fact in Christ, this transformed new creation, you and I are cast into a vast battle. A battle which Paul unpacks here today. But it is a battle that is of a spiritual nature. It's not a battle with flesh and blood, as Jonathan once uh, talked about this morning a little bit. It is a battle that is occurring even right now as I speak in the spiritual realm. And Paul unpacks both the schemes of our enemy and the shields and the protection, the armor, if you will, that God gives us practical and relevant pieces to our faith, our life as a transformed being to fight this battle. Many times we think that we need to do this battle on our own. And he starts right away by reminding us that a spiritual battle is going to require God's strength and God's protection. Okay? So if you have one of our little outlines, we provide those for you each week. You can kind of follow along. That engages you on a, on an intellectual, perhaps a mental, uh, in an area to follow along and, and, uh, and, uh, fill in those blanks. But right there in verse number 10 of chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there or turn them on, as they say now in some circles. Turn your Bible on. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in his mighty power, not our power, not my power, some of you are really wonderful, strong, wise, uh, great people. But you do not have God's strength unless you take up that strength. And sometimes we get this crossed. We want to try to fight this battle in our own will, in our own strength. And you might be able to last for a little while, but it is my understanding and my experience that I need to be strong in God's power. And I want to take a look quickly at that word, that power word. Kratos is the Greek word that Paul is using here, and he's actually used it before. You may have remembered one of the first messages back to chapter one. 
was actually in verses 18 and 19. It's a long section, but it reminds us of the three things that Paul wants us to, to remember or to be reminded of. I pray that your, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of the inheritance that we have, and this incomparably great power for us who believe. And that power, this kratos, that's the word, is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And so that power is what God uh, it calls us to. To be strong in God's mighty power basically means I can start writing checks from God's accounts. Oh, how about that? He continues here in verse 11. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. It's a wonderful verse that we ought to maybe uh, memorize. Take a stand now in verse 11 by putting on armor. It's football season. I thought about trying to maybe hand, get myself a, a Garway Pirate jersey and a nice set of football gear because, boy, you folks over there have got yourself a football team, don't you? I did play many years of football, by the way, well past those days. But every Saturday, Sunday, Friday nights, young warriors put on their armor to play this wonderful game that teaches us about life. But we take a stand by putting on God's armor. And what Paul is about to do is to set up this wonderful metaphor, this wonderful, beautiful, deep, rich comparison where he takes a concept of our faith, of our life with Christ, of a fact of our transformation, and he compares it to something very tangible that we can put our hands on, that we can envision. And so as he walks down through this, I want you to keep that in mind. And we put on these concepts. We put on these aspects of God's power. Think of it that way. And that's how we take our stand against the enemy and his schemes. I want to kind of emphasize that too. It's in verse 11. So that we may take our stand against the enemy's schemes. And that word is methodia. Methodia. You get it, right? The, the enemy's methods. It's systematic. It's not just haphazard that our enemy is trying to destroy us. He's trying to destroy everything of God's creation. We're going to talk about that as we, as we get through this passage. But it is a methodia, a method that our enemy has set up. It's a systematic pattern of thought towards a goal or the completion or the execution of a plan. Methodia. Kind of like a chess match. I like that thought. If you've ever played the game of chess, there are some schemes, some methodias that we impart to each piece on the chess board, right? Some of you have played this. But he says it is not a physical, a physical battle. We put on the armor to withstand the enemy's methodia. And that methodia is not physical. Here's verse 12. He says, for our struggle, you have to stop there. How many wrestlers in the room? You wrestlers. I have a lot of respect for wrestlers. Because that's what this word translates as. For our wrestling, some of your translations may say that. For our, we wrestle. And first off, with wrestlers... As opposed to football players, I'm not sure why you guys would want to ever be wrestlers. Ugh. And, and a big, long, tall, not very strong guy like me, I get wrapped up in a pretzel and tied in a knot really quick in a wrestling match. I've tried it. 
I got a lot of respect for you that are wrestling. But it's a hand-to-hand. It's a very intimate. It's, a, it's, a, it's an intense and raw conflict. And our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's not against the, the things we can see. It's actually against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world. And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, earlier in the book, earlier in the letter, he's mentioned this, that we might have power, that we might understand hope, inheritance, and power, but it is in that that we would have hope in the heavenly realms. And that he actually displays his power through us to send a very strong message to those heavenly realms. You remember that? That was a powerful part of the book as well. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against a person. Now, I want you to take that and, and apply it to your life today. Because sometimes we get in conflicts with people. We do. We disagree about things. But I want you to understand that there is, there is an underpinning, an underbelly to what that conflict might be. And that conflict is spiritual. But back to the, back to the chess game. I want you to look at this picture. It's a wonderful painting uh, by a British artist by the name of Charles Muir Webb. And it hangs in the Louvre in Paris, France. And this uh, depicts a cosmic chess game between a young man and the devil, with the angels overlooking. The neat thing about this painting is that Charles Webb named it or titled it Checkmate. Checkmate is the name of this painting. It depicts a chess game between Satan and a human player who, if you observe the board carefully, appears to be losing. You'll see most off, if you don't know anything about chess, that there are many more white pieces who have been captured than black pieces. Okay, That's your first clue. However, there's a wonderful story behind this painting that one of the world's famous chess masters was in the Louvre and he was observing this painting. And he said, wait a minute. And he looked a little closer and he said, I need to meet this, I need to meet the, the curator of this, of this museum because this painting has been mistitled. And certainly they did. He found a way to replicate this exact configuration on his chessboard, and he figured out that that young man had one more move. It was not, indeed, a checkmate. Checkmate, if you remember, in chess means, I'm done. That's it. There's no more moves. But on this chessboard, if we recreate it the way the, the painter and the artist subtly painted into his painting, is that it is not over. Even when you believe it's not over, this chess master figured out a way not only to get this young man out of that uh, terrible situation chess-wise, but he actually figured out the move sequence where this young man could win. He checkmated the enemy. That's kind of a cool story. Checkmate painting is a haunting depiction of a battle between good and evil, the consequences of losing to the devil. Intricate details and symbolism make it a popular work of art for Art, art uh, fanatics as well as chess, uh, chess enthusiasts. One thing that I think I gather from this is that you look at the gentleman's, the young man's very focused contemplation. 
what he's doing is he's trying not to underestimate the enemy. And so that's my recommendation to us today. As Jonathan alluded to, one of the ways that we can fail, one of the ways that we miss the mark with regard to our understanding of spiritual realm is to completely deny that it is, that it is even there. Or, perhaps less worse, but still not the right way, is to underestimate or to think that it really doesn't matter. Like it doesn't have anything to do with you. Right? So there's two ways that we need to understand, but also not underestimate our enemy. Two common ways. We can disregard it, is to underestimate our enemy, or there are camps of thought now where we miss the mark by obsessing over it as well. You've met these people, right? Everything is a spiritual application. It's hyper-spirituality. The devil is behind every little rock, and according to these people, he's trying to get me everywhere I go. That's not quite right either. So there's a healthy balance to understanding the schemes, the methods of the enemy, but also understanding the shields and the protection that God gives us. And so let's stop right there for a second, because... Just, I just mentioned the handouts, right? So you have those handouts, and when we put these together, it's usually by Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon, Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday morning, and sometimes the Spirit may change my mind between Wednesday and Sunday. And so I don't want to jump down to the bottom of the, of the handout for you. Because given the nature of where we're going to go with this, I want to talk to you, wouldn't it be great if you just had a peek into Satan's playbook, wouldn't you, just, wouldn't you just have such an advantage if you could actually catch the signs of your opponent hmm. and try to implement some plays that would offset and be preparing you for the next methodia of your enemy? Does that ring a bell with anybody? Oh my, sorry, had to do it. But I'm going to whip down through these as we fill these in. And I want to share with you some scripture that allude to the playbook of our enemy, the schemes, the methodia, if you will. First off, I want to mention is is unforgiveness. So where we are reluctant to forgive someone is actually a weapon, a scheme, a play that the enemy plays. And in fact, a hint towards that is found in 2 Corinthians. Paul writing to this other church in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, he says, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. He's he's a founder of this church. He's a mentor to these people. He says, you forgive and I'll forgive. And what I've forgiven, if there's anything to forgive, I've forgiven it in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. Because think about it. That is the great block in our relationships. If we are unwilling to forgive. Now, again, I know there's a lot to unpack there. Forgiving is most difficult. It is. I have experienced that. And it doesn't mean we have to forget the circumstances. It doesn't mean we don't deal with the consequences of that sin, of that error, of that problem. But we must forgive, otherwise Satan may outwit us. We are not unaware of his schemes. I thought that was really, really powerful. A second part of uh, Satan's playbook is his anger, is our anger, the anger of the world, right? Jim Bartholomew a few weeks ago unpacked this part of chapter 4 with us. He said, in your anger, don't sin. Because we're going to get angry. 
Even Jesus himself got angry. So it's not a denial necessarily that anger is the sin. Anger is may not be the sin. It is an emotional reaction to injustice, and it's certainly a healthy reaction to certain things. But in that anger, we are not to sin. We're not to let the sun go down while we're still angry. We need to find reconciliation for that anger. Because if it just lingers, it makes us sick. It makes everyone around us, uh, you know, sensitive, and perhaps we can hurt them. And we give the devil a foothold when we remain angry. I think another part of Satan's playbook is not our unforgiveness, not only our anger, but oftentimes, and this is a big one for me, is that my pride can get in the way. Basically, pride is is the original sin, <laughs> if you think about it. The reason that it's labeled as the original sin, often in in theological writing or historical writing, is that that's kind of the story behind Satan himself, isn't it? Satan, Lucifer, as we sometimes read about. He was a beautiful, heavenly created being. A chief of angels and perhaps even a musician of of sorts. But he became conceited. He became full of himself. He became full of pride. And he wanted to take God's place. He wanted to be God himself. And so he was dismissed from heaven like lightning, as Jesus said. And he works now to destroy God's creation in any way in any method that he can. You can become prideful in yourself as well. You can become full of yourself. And that can be uh, a very, very powerful weapon in the playbook of God, in the playbook of Satan, excuse me. Uh, here's a little uh, neat application of that. For uh, the, the leader that Timothy was, Paul is writing in his letter, he says, when you select people to be leaders in this church, When you select deacons, elders, leaders, this person must not be a recent convert or he's going to become conceited and fall under the same judgment that the devil did. And so it's a powerful part of um, group dynamics and organizational health to have people who are humble, who are mature, and who are not conceited or prideful in our leadership positions. A final part of the playbook as you're filling them out here. So we've got unforgiveness. Anger, pride, falsehood. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, back to Jim's message in chapter 4. He, he reminded us, you must put off falsehood. Don't lie to each other. Speak truthfully to each other. Right? For we're all members of the same body. Don't poison each other with this weapon, with this scheme of the devil. Because the devil would love for you to believe something that's not true. That's his, that's his language. Right? We read it sometimes as a Greek word, diablos. Diablos. Liar. Two-minded. You don't know what's true and what's not. There's a lot of lies that the devil would love for us to believe. You can be your own God. There's a lie for you. That's not true, by the way. You can have all you want. No consequences. Just take as much as you want. No consequences. There's a lie. Nobody understands you. How about that lie? That's an interesting one. Nobody understands me. Nobody can relate to me. I'm reading statistics now, very devastating statistics, especially with this conspicuously empty section of our church. We pray for the youth as they are on their retreat with Owen. Didn't he do a great job last week? That was awesome. Really love that kid now. Even more so now, right? 
But that group right there is falling victim to some of these lies. And the most frequent lie that we understand from folks who have or are struggling with suicidal thoughts is that nobody can relate to what their certain situation is. I want you to think about the isolation of that lie. Nobody understands you. That's a powerful silence. But that's a lie. You realize that's a lie? That's a lie from hell. Because Jesus does understand you. And Jesus does know what you're going through. And so no matter, no matter where you're at, whether you're in the, within the sound of my voice right now, if you have that lie implanted into your head, I want you to know that there are people and there is a God who understands you. How about another one? I've done things that can't be forgiven. There's a lie. I've done things that are just unforgivable. It might be pride and falsehood. You're taking pride in the bad things you did? Do you realize God created us? He knows very well our capacity for bad and our capacity for good. Trust me. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. The Encouragers United podcast is a joint ministry effort with the Walnut Creek Mennonite Church here in beautiful Holmes County, Ohio. If you live in the area or are visiting the heart of Ohio Amish country, we invite you to visit our church. We welcome you to visit and share a Sunday worshiping with us each week at 10 a.m. We offer a warm and welcoming environment where you can feel at peace and hopefully connect with God. Walnut Creek Mennonite Church is a member of the Evangelical Anabaptist Network. We seek to blend the foundational traditions of the past with an exciting vision for the future. Walnut Creek Mennonite Church, God-ordained, Christ-centered, and Spirit-led. Learn more about us at our website, wcmenn.org. Uh, take a look here. I did a little connection before we go into these pieces now. The enemy's schemes of unforgiveness, anger, pride, and falsehood can be shielded by these implements of God's truth and of his power. And so we're going to deal with peace, righteousness, salvation, and the truth. What a wonderful comparison. And so now we go back. Let's go back to this portion of Scripture here. In verses 13 and 14, he says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when that day, evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. I love that. I love that image of the standing. Over 500 years ago, one of the most famous Protestant reformers is Martin Luther. And Luther's, one of most, uh, Luther's most quotable words are those from the Diet of Worms, Worms, in 1521. This assembly that was calling Luther to recant and to retract the statements that he had made against the church. He stands before the council and this is the official transcript quote of him saying his response to their accusations. Unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for to go against my conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. Here I stand. It's such a powerful moment. 
Because if you know what's what's at stake here, this is the guy. This is the guy that just challenges everything that's going on right now. He nails his theses to the door of that Wittenberg church and blows everything up. And they're just trying to put the monster back into the box. And they say, you have to recant this. Or we will excommunicate you, we'll dismiss you, we will, we will strip you of your titles and your wealth and your influence and we will, we will malign you. Yeah. Go ahead. Here I stand. I can do no other. What we're doing every day when we stand against this corrupt world in cases where we might have loss, we must stand. We must stand. And so we must learn to put on the armor. In 14, he starts this wonderful metaphor. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The truth. The whole armor of God includes the truth. The first piece that, that he lists holds everything else together. Think about it. The belt is the center of the body, the center of the outfit. And everything comes together around the truth of God. Jesus said it himself, the truth will set you free. That's John chapter 8. The truth will set you free. He also said in John 14:6, I am the truth. I'm the I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father except by me. And so there's a belt of truth that we place around it. Once again, that fights the enemy's scheme of falsehood and, and telling us those things, planting those thoughts in our minds that are simply not true. And so I get up every morning and say, God, help me strap on your belt of truth. And may it hold me together in the center part of who I am. The second part of that verse, of course, the breastplate of righteousness. The belt of truth is now then covered with this metal piece of armor. So once again, remember, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ serves as a breastplate, a covering for my vital organs, my heart, my lungs, my soul, my spirit. And the beauty of this piece is that this piece of armor is sometimes uh, translated as the heart protector. It's the heart protector. But the cool thing about this metaphor is that it is not your righteousness that this breastplate is made of. Thank goodness. Thank goodness this breastplate is not made of your righteousness. It's not made of Charlie's righteousness. It'd be all rusty and full of holes and falling apart and the hinges breaking and whatever's going. Maybe mine's just made of cardboard, I guess. That's not going to stop anything, right? But this is forged. It's forged hardest metal of the righteousness of Christ. Because we are in Christ. We are, and, and think about that transformation. The righteousness of God is imparted to you and I. That's what belief is. When you became a believer, when this transformation occurred in your mind, you were imputed. They call that imputed righteousness. That's a big doctrinal theological uh, belief that we have. I have the belief of imputed righteousness. That is a very Anabaptist Mennonite faith principle. We believe we were imparted the righteousness of Christ at our belief, at our moment of faith. And that breastplate of righteousness protects our hearts, protects us. So let's keep going here. I might be found in him. This is a, this is a, a word from Paul to the Philippians. 
that I might be found in him, meaning Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or my good works or anything else, right? But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. It's been imparted to you and I. Christ's righteousness becomes our protection. Let's go to 15 now. Running right down through this. And my feet are going to be fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The boots of peace. Take a look at this cool picture. These are some actual uh, Roman uh, boots. They were they were made. They were lightweight. They were they were uh, protective. But that is what historians will tell you as the mo- one of the most important reasons Julius Caesar was a successful general. Because he equipped his soldiers with the newest technology, right? And they made it possible to cover long distances and shorter periods of time. And they would, they would sneak up on their enemies, in essence. Well, how far is it from this city to this city? Well, I think, sir, it's going to take them about, oh my goodness, they're here already, right? Because of that peace that we place on our feet, we have a stable grounding to fight and to stand. His, uh, right, his righteousness as our breastplate, the truth of God buckled around our belts and our feet shod with the peace of the good news. You are at peace with God. You are at peace with man. That's the foundation of our standing. You see, all athletes generate power from the ground up. We'll tell you that. That's why injuries to your feet, your ankles, your knees, your hips, they're so devastating to athletes because we can't translate that power, but it comes from the ground up. And so the peace of God is the foundation of how we stand. In 16, he mentions another peace that's so cool. We could spend the whole message just on this. I can't do it though, right? In addition to all of these pieces, take up the shield of your faith, the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take a look at this picture. Um, it's actually called in, in Rome, the Latin word for this is scutum. Latin word, scutum. The shield of faith. Many of them look like this. There aren't too many of these left around. I was doing some research this week. We found one archaeologically. They dug it up and they found one. My goodness, I wonder where all these things went, right? But it's more than just believing in our minds. I want you to think about faith. Faith. The belief. It's our assurance. In fact, the Greek word that, that Paul is using here is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. It, it, it refers to trust, to confidence, to belief, to a faith. And earlier in the book, he uses this same pistis word, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, for by grace you've been saved through pistis, through faith, through your confidence, your belief. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. So we didn't earn it. He gave it to us. And the cool thing about these uh, these shields is that most of them perhaps were covered with leather. They would soak them before they went into battle. And that's how they would then extinguish anything that was burning. Like a flaming arrow would hit it and it would, it would quench it. It would put it out. The cool thing about this and, and the rabbit trail that you could get on this week in your own personal devotions is to then dive back into the chapter of Hebrews 11. We don't know exactly who wrote this. There's probably good reason to believe that Paul may be the, the actual author of this, but we don't know. But faith, it's the confidence, right? Pistis in what we hope for. 
And it's the assurance of what we don't see. I know you're there, God. I know you are protecting me. I'm taking up my shield of faith. Okay? The cool thing about this this uh, shield is that it's actually not very good to just have it by yourself. It was big. It was about four feet high, two feet wide. It was basically putting two solid doors together, and it had a lateral sort of handle like this. Like So it's not like that little shield you see in Gladiator where they're going to be fighting with it at the same time. This thing is like a solid wooden door, okay? And it's valuable to you. It has a curvature to it so that things can glance off, right? But why take a look here. And you tell me whether this makes any sense to you. Because these shields became part of a greater scheme, a, a greater methodia to fight the enemy. And so what does this tell you? You're not in this battle alone. In fact, the combined faith of our brothers and sisters is what could be even more powerful. The shield was not just an individual defense. It was something special because it could be used in collaboration with others to create some very effective defensive formations. In fact, the picture you see here is called a Latin testudo. Testudo. There you go. You went to church today and you just learned a Latin word for turtle. That's a Latin word for turtle. Testudo. And so I can imagine the commander calling out these Latin words. Testudo! And we all gather together with our shields of faith to protect each other in this type of Standing defensive formation. It's a beautiful picture. Hard times are endured in community. We are not going to be effective alone. Our collective faith is far more powerful than any one of us by ourselves. Amen? Amen. That's why you're here today. Verse 17. We're almost there, folks. This is a beautiful, another beautiful part of the, of the armor. Take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Take a look at that. The helmet made of a hardened, uh, forged metal. The helmet is obviously to protect your head. Okay? And so our metaphor plays true here. The brain, our thoughts, the nervous center of your whole being. Okay? Where signals are coming and going, messages about how your body should function, where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do. Okay? Another great thing. You'll see this in the game of football. Somebody gets hit, and their helmet comes off, they must go off the field with their helmet. That's part of the rules, in case you didn't know that. You know why? Because they need to go to someone to put their helmet back on and make sure that it fits right and that everything's good. It is a civil game, you know. Most people don't think that it is. But they must make sure that their helmet is intact. The knowledge of our salvation. Think about that. The knowledge of our salvation. Soterian is the Greek word here. Soterian. This can also be translated as our deliverance. It's another way to uh, uh, translate that word. So our deliverance. And remember, we've preached this before. Your salvation has three different tenses. It happens in three different time periods. I was saved. Yep, on that day. I am being saved. Yep, today. It's working on me now. And I will be saved when Christ comes for me in glory. Justification sanctification, glorification. We have to know these things. And if you understand that, think about how that protects your thoughts every day. Imparted thought. No. 
I was saved. Okay? I am being saved. It's a process. I failed today. You're worthless. Oh, you're not worth. No, no, no. Salvation, my deliverance protects my thoughts. It's awesome. It's a great thought. And the second part of that verse, hang with me here, folks. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Read it. Verse 18 or verse 17 there. So I have a friend who loaned me their sword. This is a bit more medieval. So the sword that we're talking about probably in Paul's day was a little bit smaller, maybe. But this is the real deal, folks. But I want you to think about this metaphor. We could, I thought, you know I wanted to bring all the pieces, are, and we'd be here till 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But this is a powerful metaphor. And here's what I want you to see. Go back to that verse. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And what you thought, just like I thought this week, was that that word, word, goes back to what? Immediately I thought, logos. It's the logos. The logos of God. Right? We read that in John chapter 1. Oh, the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. That's John chapter 1. Logos. The meaning. The essence of God. Yeah, that makes sense. That's not what he put there. And when you go back to your original translations, the word, word, the word of God right there that Paul uses, rhema, R-H-E-M-A. Go ahead and write it in the, in the margin. R-H-E-M-A. It's a beautiful picture. Rhema. Some of you have heard of this. The difference between logos and rhema is critical to understanding this metaphor. Okay? Because rhema simply means the declaration of God. It's a word that has been spoken. So the meaning of God, the essence of God, the, the, the ethos of God, the word, the logos is Jesus. What he has said, what he has declared has been forged into a weapon. And it's the word, the rhema of God that Paul is using here as this metaphor. And so I want you to think about that. It's not just his essence. No, it's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that what God has said and what God has already declared is a truth that will not be reckoned with because it is a double-edged sword, right? We read that when we read it uh, in, in back in Hebrews again. The word, this rhema, again, here's the match. The rhema of God is alive and it's active. What God has said is true and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing a soul and a spirit. Joints and marrow. And it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. That's the rhema of God. This is a powerful image, isn't it? Now, God is telling you to take up that. Paul is saying, you take up the rhema of God in this spiritual battle. Well, how do I do that, pastor? You're a Mennonite pastor standing on a platform with a sword. That's right, I am. And I'm so excited to share with you the greatest example we could ever have of a person using the rhema of God in the spiritual battle with our enemy. Can you figure it out? Yeah, it's Jesus. And at the beginning of his mess, of his public ministry, Jesus was called into the wilderness. You can read about it in all the gospels. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. And he was confronted with the enemy. I can't go through it. I got, I don't have time. Thanks for putting that clock on the back wall, guys. 
But in the three times that Jesus is proposing, or is, is, accepts a proposal from the enemy. Hey, why don't you do this? It is written. It is written. It is written. And so what power do we have at our disposal in a country where the Bible is everywhere? We can read it on every corner. We have several of them in our homes. And I want you to start reading it differently. I want you to start to memorize Scripture that will help you in the battle as the, declar- as the declaration of God, the rhema of God that is the sword of the Spirit that we put into this uh, equipment. The Word of God gives us direction. Wouldn't it be nice if we lived this way with all of these pieces in place to handle the unforgiveness, the anger, the pride, the falsehood, the things that plague us because we're in this together. Jesus used Scripture in the heat of His battle with our enemy. When that day of evil came for Jesus, He was ready. And I simply ask you, are you ready? Are you ready? If you can do me a favor this week, I wish I had one more week. I almost did it. We're going to start, we're going to start our Advent stuff next week. I've got a great message system in a series that I want to unveil starting next week. But you've got to read 18, 19, 20 and further. Read the rest of this book today because it comes into encouraging you to pray. And we will get back to this concept as it teaches us. One thing I want to do, worship and and him folks, come on up here. I want to have us stand right now in a statement together that we will stand up wherever God calls us, equipped with his equipment, with his shields and his items of, of warfare against an enemy who has a very clear scheme, a very clear method that he'd like to impart. Are you ready? Let me pray for us. And then we're going to sing a song together that I think captures a lot of what we just talked about. But Lord, thank you so much for our church. Thank you that each one of us, both as individuals, but as a part of the collective body, have a responsibility to be aware that no matter how young we are, how old we are, we, if we are transformed, are in this battle. And we're in it together. And so we take up our pieces, Lord. Teach us these concepts once again, that the the truth the righteousness, the salvation, the faith, the peace, the Word of God, as it equips us to fight the battle, to stand firm in our families, to stand firm in our marriages, to stand firm in our households, to stand firm in our workplaces, schools, in our community, and even here in our church, Lord, to stand firm in your strength. God, we praise you for this metaphor. We praise you for this teaching. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have called us to stand by your side. Protect us and grow us. Use us in this battle any way you choose. We submit to you now. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.